If you've been listening to this for any amount of time, even one episode, especially the earlier episodes, you know that I watch a lot of films. I always have. Ever since I was, I don't know, I want to say like 12, 13, around that age. And for me, that time, that period in time, that would have been like the late 80s maybe into the early 90s, that's when I really started to watch films, but really pay attention to them, right? Not just as like something you do, like just as entertainment past the time, but more of like, oh, this is like an art form. Like people actually work to make this interesting. And uh, it's funny because I look at things over time and I look back and I think, man, what were those films that really kind of formed a lot of how I see film? Like what makes something a film to me? What makes it cinematic or what makes it intriguing or, or entertaining? Sometimes it's like visual styles. Sometimes it's uh, uh, acting styles, like performances that really just dial in what I think is is realistic or or whatever um other times it's types of stories or genres that really you you start to see like an artist or, or a filmmaker let's say builds on something that came before it right and that's a long way to say that for whatever reason i just dialed back into this period in the 90s where there was this rash, I say rash, there was this trend of these like erotic, sexy time thrillers that mostly didn't work. And I say mostly because they had some of the elements that you need. There's, there's a little bit of a formula to it. And, you know, if you kind of rewind the tape a little bit, and let's look at maybe where this all I feel like hit a new level. I mean, if if you want to back up to 1987, you have Fatal Attraction, which because of its story, because of the, the performances in it, I think it really keyed into something that was going on in the moment, right? In culture, let's say. And so that was a, a monster success, but also a, a pretty challenging film in terms of the story it was trying to tell. And even for the standards of the day, pretty risque, you know? And that was 87. And then a couple years later, 89, you have Sea of Love, which my memory is that it was a much anticipated return to film acting for Al Pacino because he'd kind of taken a break for a good part of the 80s. And I don't really remember this in real time as it happened, but I do remember when that movie came out, they kind of made a big deal about, oh, Al Pacino's in a new film. And he hadn't, and if you look at the IMDb or whatever, it, it there is a little bit of a gap. There, there's like a lull it, during the 80s. So for him to end up in 1989 being back in a, in a big film, but also a film that kind of pushed what you could show in a film in terms of uh, sex scenes or intermixing that with murder and crime, you know, those two elements, I guess that's a big part of this whole genre, right? The erotic thriller. I mean, it says it right there in the genre itself. 
There's got to be something dangerous and something sexy about it. And the two somehow have to dance with each other and make an interesting story. All right. So you've got those two films that really kind of come in at the very tail end of the 80s. And I think off of the success and the notice that those films got, all of a sudden you see other filmmakers coming around to this same type of story, this same formula. And they come at it from different ways. And sometimes even with different messages or different ideas behind the stories. But I, I think it's interesting to just look at it, kind of examine it from a distance now in terms of time of what made these films good or what made them have impact even like with just with audiences. Like why did people care about these movies? I mean, a lot of these films were in theaters. They were big productions with uh, known actors, filmmakers. But a lot of these also went straight to, well, in the day it would have been like straight to cable. It would have been something you see like, you know, that's where the whole Skinamax thing came from. It was like Cinemax, Showtime, um, even HBO to some degree. They just you know brought in whoever's independent, low budget productions and threw them on the cable service. Like you know, one in the morning. It really built a a strangely. It built like a legacy during that time period. Uh, and so here's what it happened. So I started watching a film that I remember seeing when it came out. And I just thought, there must have been something to this. And I'll tell you the film in a minute. I kind of want to walk through some of this period, and then we'll get to that. But it it made me kind of back up and look at this whole thing and see, like, where, where did these films come from? Where did they end up? And then what are the counterparts in 2023? So we end up with the late 80s. We've got Fatal Attraction, Sea of Love. And there's probably a couple of others that I could think of that are very close or or even in this genre. But I those are the ones that kind of stick out because I think they're the ones that had the most impact and turned into what we get in the 90s. And in 1990, we kick it off, right? With Presumed Innocent. I remember at the time, there was such a buzz about the film because it was like, it's Harrison Ford who's coming off of all of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films during the 80s. He had plenty of other films under his belt at that point and was a known, like an A-lister, right? And for him to be in this film that was based off a best-selling novel, also Scott Turow, and from some of the trailers and just some of, you know, if you hadn't read the book, you didn't really know what the story was, it kind of looked like he was playing the villain in the film. And so I remember that being like a big buzz, even at that point of, you know, like on Entertainment Tonight or whatever, they're like, ooh, you know, Harrison Ford's new film, what is his character? Now, if you read the books, of course, none of this was a surprise of how this is going to turn out, but it was a pretty notable entry. And it had a lot of these same... um same elements. So that's 1990. You start off with a little bit of a, of a shock to the system. In 1991, you follow that up. I mean, there are other films in between these, but I'm just going to kind of give you some of the, 
the highlights, I guess, or lowlights. I don't know. 1991, Body of Evidence, notably starring Madonna, Willem Dafoe. Um, who else is in that? Um, there's some other names in it, but I remember the thing being like, oh, this is Madonna, and this was her... It wasn't her first film, but it was a film where she's playing a really kind of risky role in terms of um, not only what the character is or what she does in the film, but like you got to be like a real performer, like a solid actor to do that. And I don't know that that was ever the case. And look, for whatever reason, or we know the reasons, it's not a great film. Uh, It kind of soured some things, you know, kind of tainted the water a little bit because you made a big deal about this film and you've got this big mega star in it. Who's not an actor though. Who's a music star. But in that moment in the late eighties and nineties, she was of course, a, a like a mega star in her own right across all media. So this was a, a pretty important landmark, even if the film didn't turn out to be so great. Um, but I think it's worth noting that this, I feel like it was, it was the beginning of this like stunt casting kind of thing where you have these big stars that come in to do something that's maybe unexpected, maybe a little bit shocking for audiences because it goes against what they probably perceive this person to be as a, as a performer or even as a person, I guess. So then follow that up when 1992 we've got Basic Instinct, which didn't really, I mean, it had Michael Douglas, who was already, of course, a, a well-known actor from Fatal Attraction, of course. But we've got a new face, and I say new face, but a new presence, because I think people already knew in some ways from some other films who Sharon Stone was, but in this film, that's Catherine Trammell all the way. Like, that's such a dedicated, such a bold performance. Um, and it's it's kind of iconic at this point, like, especially in this genre, right? Like, all these films, I'm going to tell you, like, that role, that performance, it really kind of stands out, like, way above everybody else, pretty much. And, you know, this, thinking of Basic Instinct, it's the one that, for me, really solidified, like, oh, this is a thing. Oh, okay, I see what we're doing now. It's not like these films just kind of happen to be about the same types of things or have similar elements. Like, this is a whole thing now. Because, one, it was a box office success, but you also have just uh, another example of, like, a stacked pool of talent. You've got these performers. You've got Paul Verhoeven directing. You've got Jean de Bont doing cinematography. The film looks amazing. You got Jerry Goldsmith with a pretty solid score, the soundtrack. Um, it's, it's cut together. Well, the product, I mean, it just looks amazing. It moves. It's got a certain pace to it. And yet it's all wrapped up in a nice clean and really pretty easy to summarize package, you know? in terms of the plot, in terms of the premise of it all. It's not hard to unpack it. So then it's just a matter of like, just execute, right? Just let it happen. Let let the audience experience it. 
also it was generating controversy of its own with how graphic it was. And even in some of the portrayals of homosexual elements and relationships and whether that is unfairly or wrongly associated with like murder and homicidal tendencies. Uh, it crossed so many lines or at least stepped up to the lines and put a toe over that like mainstream audiences were really puzzled by it, but they went to go see it because they had to know what exactly is happening in this film. And I remember seeing it and I remember thinking, whoa, this is not like a film I've seen before. Because <laughs> in 1992, I would have been, uh, I guess, like 17, 18, uh, something like that. So it was a thing where I knew kind of the buzz about the film, but I really thought it was still more of a crime thriller. But this is, one, I guess, one of the first that really leans into the sexual aspect of it. There's a lot of sex scenes, a lot of nudity, there's a lot of just the air about the film. It just revolves around it. And and looking back now, you could see where, oh, this is the film that really hit the grand slam with all of these pieces, all of these elements to this genre. Like all of these films, they were a little bit of like a in the wake of or like a reaction to the 80s and into the 90s AIDS epidemic. And I say that because there's just a thing that it was just in the air at the time. And if you didn't live in that time, you don't remember that time. It's, it's hard to maybe understand. Although one things were different in terms of sensibilities and what was acceptable and all that. But then also, you know, as much as people experience with COVID-19, with the pandemic, the paranoia and the fear, all that kind of uncertainty over how can I get this? What do I need to do to avoid this? And is all of that just futile? Like, am I just going to end up getting this thing anyway? Yeah, there was like a real scare at a point in time where people thought they could get AIDS by being next to the wrong person or, you know, off of uh, sharing like a glass, you know, sitting on the same toilet seat. Super basic, but also unrealistic and irrational fears. And so if you experienced any of that recently with COVID-19, imagine the same thing, but also there's the aspect of it where you choose it. With COVID-19, the pandemic, all of that, it was almost like it could find you at any moment and you might just be helpless to do anything about it. And here with AIDS and sex and, and trying to understand like how it works, there was a big component where it was like, you just, ah, look, just, hey, wanting to have a good time, wanting to be in a relationship, whatever. And you could find yourself uh, knocking on death's door. That was the way it was kind of painted. And that was the fear. And in reality, it wasn't so easy. It wasn't so cut and dry. But people didn't know that. There was just a lot of uncertainty about it. And I think that manifests itself in art 
but especially in a lot of films, a lot of what popular culture was generating. It was kind of reinforcing its own uh, maybe misguided ideas. And this and a lot of these films represented that. And I think that kind of fear, that paranoia, that uncertainty about, you know, what sex means, which is, look, for most people, it's a pretty it's a pretty fundamental part of your existence one way or another, you know, it's like in a period where sex just, just being undeniable as it is, but then also, you know, sex as something that's possibly dangerous. And even the, the idea of crossing it with something that's violent. And then also, you know, the third sex as something that, sometimes is forbidden or, or there's taboos about it, right? It's things we just don't talk about, you know? But then also sex like equaling death for a lot of people. I think those were all elements of these types of films and Basic Instinct, I think personally is the one that really nailed them. Not just had them somewhere in the mix, but got them all like to hit, like square on. And so after that, you know, you, you get 92, you have single white female, which is a little bit of a different take on the genre, but it is also in the vein of what happens when certain lines get crossed. And that one is a little more about like uh, this kind of stealing someone's identity or even like into like stalker territory, you know, where someone just becomes obsessed and, and look, I think that's a big part of all of these films also. A lot of these films, they deal with like lust, right? And passion. But they also deal with obsession, even, uh, you know, trust and betrayal of that trust. And eventually where it becomes deadly, whether there's a murder or there's some other kind of violence involved. And so you have single white female, 92, same year, you have Unlawful Entry, which personally is a favorite. Hey, rest in peace, Ray Liotta. But to me, that was one that has a great cast, even has a really different spin on the whole uh, genre, but is also still pretty intense. You throw the police element in there, it, it, it kind of ups the stakes because it's like, well, you can't just go to the police if the police are the part of the problem, right? And after that, 93, you've got Sliver, which, look, I mean, it's Sharon Stone again. Very different kind of role. Very um, kind of buttoned up. Uh, a little bit of a repressed character versus Catherine Trammell. And yet you've got a similar thing. There is some of these elements of like obsession and voyeurism and how that can affect someone's trust and sense of security, right? Not to say that these are all great films. Again, I think Sliver was one that had like a lot of hype behind it, but didn't really do what people were expecting. And same with Following that, you have Color of Night, which was another, you know, uh, Bruce Willis starring in this pretty big buzzed about erotic thriller that really wasn't, you know? I mean, it's 
it's not a great film. Even the story itself is, has some trouble. And yet it's another entry into this genre. And I think it gets us down the road to where we end up. In 94, you also have The Last Seduction, which you know I haven't seen in a while. I think the last time I saw it was when it came out. But I remember that being kind of smart and kind of crafty, you know? It's a little bit less of uh, what I would say, like a neurotic thriller. It's a little more of a, a caper-ish kind of, uh, um, I don't know. I don't know. It's it's like just adjacent, but I feel like it's still close enough to put in here. And it's also notable, I think, because like Linda Fiorentino kind of made a mark for herself with that film. I mean, she'd been in some other films before that, but that one was one that, oh, here's a new face. And not just a new face, but also a new presence, right? Just like Sharon Stone and Basic Instinct. I'm like, okay, this is this is someone to watch now. Like, what are they going to do next? Okay. 95, we turn around. Linda Fiorentino is also in Jade, which, look, I mean, you stack the deck in that one. You got Joe Esterhouse, who wrote Basic Instinct. William Friedkin, who, again, rest in peace, right? But directed The Exorcist, directed The French Connection, all these great, just legendary films, but also kind of raw and kind of edgy. On top of all that, you've got David Caruso coming off of a hot first season of NYPD Blue, which I really think is probably still one of the best seasons of television, of network television, that there has ever been. And I think he's a big part of that. I just think that if he would have stayed on that show, I think that show would have really gone on to change television. It started out that way, and it did some things throughout its time or whatever for, you know, 90s network TV. But that first season was so strong on him and Dennis Franz, of course. But I think that was his ticket. But he jumped out. He's like, I'm, I want to go do films now. So now you put that in the mix with all of these other talents and you've got this, what seems like on paper at least, a recipe for like a, another big runaway success in this genre. It's not going to be Jurassic Park, right? It's not going to be a, a mega blockbuster, but it's going to be something that stands out. Well, I, you know, if you've seen the film, you know that it didn't turn out so great. You can see little signature moves and moments and elements from all of these people. You can see Friedkin's style and you can see his uh, touch in terms of how kind of raw the film is. You've even got Chaz Palminteri in there doing his thing. Gets a little over the top, but at the same time, He's on the come up too, and you feel it like, okay, here's another guy to watch. Joe Esterhouse, I don't know. I I kind of feel like that's maybe the weak, weakest uh, link in the chain here, because I think the story is a little too convoluted. It's not confusing, but it's just a, it's got a little too much going on. And yet, Linda Fiorentino, solid. Even David Caruso, I mean, he's he kind of just feels like John Kelly displaced 
to uh, this, what, I think it's San Francisco, right? Because the the car chase that's in this. So it's like, it kind of feels like everything's pretty solid, but I think there's just something underneath. There's something in the skeleton, in the bones that doesn't really work in this film. And it's a, it's a dud. Comes out to pretty disappointing reception. And even more than Jade, which I don't think is all that terrible. I just think it's not as good. Uh, the film that I think really just kind of killed the whole wave for most audiences, let's say, was, it, I mean, it has to be Showgirls, which came out in 95, right? And Paul Verhoeven, again, doing his thing, very stylish film, very graphic and intense film. And even what should have been what I think was intended to be a real breakout performance by, I mean... Elizabeth Berkeley, formerly of Saved by the Bell, like that should have been like a real moment in her career and in a, in a good way. And I think it just turned into a sour note because that film is doing things that people weren't expecting, weren't ready for, and probably just didn't want out of this kind of story. And the film itself, I mean... It's kind of trying to do a few different things at the same time. And I don't think those are things that really work together. Like it's trying to be a little bit satirical, also trying to be a little bit dangerous and mysterious, but also have like a real like steamy element to it. And uh, there's enough in here that is unintentionally funny and not even mildly intriguing that I think it puts so many people off on top of that. Of course, remember uh, that was an NC 17 rated film. So that was like a big deal when that came out. And actually in the, the time when that came out, that was when I was my first job working at a movie theater. And I remember the whole buzz about that being, we have to be very careful. We did not let anybody under 17 into this film. And you know, you had to watch who was going into the theaters you had to be very uh, vigilant about it. Uh, it was just the time. It's not like today. I mean, you could see far more just opening up your phone or your laptop or whatever. So with that, so much built around that film, and then it's just not at all what people thought it was going to be. And then even for what it was, they probably didn't enjoy it like it was intended to be. Uh, I think that really was like the death now for the erotic thriller, like as a movement. And it started to recede after that point into lesser films with lesser known casts and filmmakers. Uh, it just really stepped it all down. The one that I think really kind of was the nail in the coffin, and I don't know if it was intended to be that way, but I think it was Wild Things. And that's in 98. And... I think it stands to reason that it's satire and it kind of gets into camp. And yet I don't think audiences went into it expecting that. Now, that's not to say it didn't find an audience and people didn't come around to understand like what it is. I think if you were to watch it now, kind of removed from this era in, in time, you could appreciate it more for what it was trying to be. 
So all that to say, you know, I, I just wanted to examine that period in time and those, that stretch of films because I wanted to see like, where are we at today? And in previous episodes here, I did talk about uh, Deep Water, which I think is a very similar type of film. It's even directed by Adrian Lyne, who is known for some of these films I previously talked about, right? And in another episode, I talked about The Voyeurs. And here, the, the most recent film, this is the new film for The Streak, is a film uh, called Sanctuary. Now, I, I, I don't know much about the, the filmmakers. Um, all I know is the cast. It's uh, Margaret Qualley and Christopher Abbott. I think they're doing some impressive work. Like they're really becoming presences in their own ways. Christopher Abbott, I recognize immediately from Possessor, one of my favorite films I've seen so far here in, on Film Street. Margaret Qualley, I think really kind of just sprung out of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think she's been in other films before that, but that was the one to me. It was like, you can't not see that character in that movie. And so here in this film, it's different. It's a little bit of a stylish, kind of a low-key two-hander, you know? It feels just like a like a stage play, really. And I don't know, maybe it was based on a play, but it's just two people in an apartment, and their strange relationship that, uh, or, or not even relationship, maybe their agreement, and how they both basically spend the the film trying to kind of get one over on the other. And of course, the premise is that he is a wealthy, uh, I want to say an heir or like a, he, he, he's got a business, he's got money, but he's lacking somewhere. And look, if you want to cut it straight, it's like homeboy's just a loser who can't, he just can't get his shit together. And so he hires Rebecca, this, um, it almost seems like maybe an assistant or, you know, it, it plays it real loose at first, but then you realize, oh no, this is a staged thing where she is questioning him. She is pushing him, but she is hired to do this. And then it gradually builds where you realize there's a whole sexual element to this thing. And a lot of it is about, this idea of role playing and, you know, cause they have scripts that they work with and, Oh, you got to stay to the script. You, I wrote the script this way. You got to say the words this way, but also there's like elements of like degradation and humiliation. And you start to see, this is just kind of a strange Dom sub relationship here. And when Rebecca turns around and really starts to make the blackmail play of like, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to have to tell other people what's happening here, like your family and your business, your, your company. 
And Hal, who is our wealthy loser here, he at first calls her bluff. There's no way you could prove any of this. And she reveals uh, she's got recordings. She's got video. Now all of the uh, stakes get raised because Hal starts to find himself. He starts to grow a pair. And so the, the film, it, it really pushes the envelope in terms of, see, that's the thing. There's sex in the film, but it's not graphic. There's violence in the film, but it's not gratuitous. It's not unnecessary. Because the film really is not dealing with something so overt, right? It doesn't have to be explicit because it's dealing with things that are super abstract, really. Like the idea of like gender roles, power dynamics, right? Between two people or between people of different stature, different class, let's say. All that stuff is really cloudy. Like it's hard to know necessarily where the lines are. And even the idea of this like manufactured intimacy versus like real intimacy and, and, and trust like those things are so hard to pin down because it's really subjective. It depends on who you're talking to and their perspective and their experience. I mean, this film instead just swims in that pool. Like, well, we're going to go any direction we want. You can't say one is right or one is wrong. And I, I gotta say, I mean, I gotta applaud the, the attempt I don't know if it's entirely successful by the end. We do get a resolution and we do feel like both these characters either got what they wanted or they got what they deserved in some ways. But it doesn't really build, you know, it doesn't really crescendo at, at any given moment. Now there is strangely enough, there is a sex scene in the film that is crucial to how these two characters move forward. And it's one that, you know, for all these, uh, the other films that I talked about a minute ago, like sometimes the sex scenes aren't important. They aren't even necessary. And so that's where you start to see like, okay, you're just doing this to fit in this genre maybe, or to shock the audience. I mean, that's where I say like basic instinct, you say what you want about the film, you like it or you don't like it. The sex scene in that film, the, the kind of main important one, is crucial to the film, it's crucial to the plot, because that is, that's kind of what drives everything. Right? That is the catalyst for the story beginning, and that is the catalyst for the story kind of moving into the third act, Right? Here, the, the, the important sex scene comes at the, I guess, in close to the end of the film, really. But when you see what happens and you, you kind of watch how it plays out, well, then you understand, oh, this was, that you couldn't have the story without this scene in it. It's not graphic, and it, it, I don't even think there's any like nudity or, or anything like that. It's all about what's said and the intentions behind the words, right? It's powerful, 
it's kind of hard to forget. So in that respect, I mean, it's, I think it's well done because it's still rather tasteful, but it's also kind of horrifying (laughs) if that's the right way to put it. I mean, I would say on those grounds, take a look, see what you think. I think it's only on Hulu, but it's one that kind of surprised me because it starts off really small and it doesn't really get much larger, right? It is just two people mostly talking. But it is a, a little bit of a chess game between these two characters. And by the time you get to the end and you realize, oh, who has checkmate and how did they do that? Oh, wow. Okay. That's pretty stunning. So, all that to say, look, if if you don't know this era in films, for the most part, it's probably fine. You didn't really miss a lot. And if you try to watch these films now without the memories of that time or without the right context, I could even see where they just look silly. Because there is like a heightened element to a lot of these films, to this genre, really. And I don't think, let's say, mainstream culture or whatever is at that place anymore. I think we're in a different place. So some of the things that might seem like, uh, I don't know, shocking or tawdry or whatever, I don't think they even, I don't think people would bat an eye at it anymore. You know what? It's even mentioned in Sanctuary. There's a moment where Rebecca says, I'm going to expose all your secrets here, all the things we do here. And Hal just says, look, this isn't like days in the past. Nobody's going to care about this anymore. And I, I, I thought that was a really interesting and a solid point. Times have changed. People's attitudes have changed. I just thought I'd go down this lane, take a walk for a while. And um, it's been fun. I'm going to go get back under the covers. It's cold out here. And while I'm there, I'm going to watch something new. <laughs>